0: What is going on, everyone? This is the guide, Mr. Carbon. Welcome to Universal Truth, Satan Radio. Stay tuned. So in this particular episode, what's going on for today's episode, I mean, is that I'm reading from the Hermetica. Um, That's what that's going to be my second segment. And the first segment I'm reading from a Langston Hughes short story book. it's a poem entitled African Morning. So I hope y'all enjoy the the, the story, you know, and I'm just going to try to make this episode as, as good as I could, but stay tuned. All right, y'all. So this next book I'm going to read out of is called The Hermeticus, The Lost Wisdom of the Pharaohs. It's by Timothy Furkay and Peter Gandy, and they're authors of the Jesus mystery. So I'm going to read this one called The Wisdom of the the Pharaohs, and then I'm going to read two more. So here I go with the first one. Again, it's called The Wisdom of the Pharaohs. When Casabon was writing, there, I mean, very little word was actually known about ancient Egypt. The hieroglyphs themselves were not translated into two centuries after his death. Consequently, many modern scholars now believe that he was wrong to see the Hermetic philosophy as a second century invention, especially since the discovery of the pyramid texts of Saqqara at the end of the last century. These hieroglyphs are over 5,000 years old, and yet contain doctrines that are identical to those expounded in the Hermetica. These, I mean, this suggests that the Hermetica may indeed contain the wisdom of the pharaohs, which scholars in second century Alexandria reworked for contemporary readership. The Hermetica contains passages reminiscent of Jewish Christian. Greek works. The Casabon saw this as proof that their Medica is a forgery created from hotspots of these other philosophies. Alexandria was such an uh, electric environment that this is plausible. The ancients themselves believe, however, that these traditions were influenced by the Egyptian philosophy contained. Within the Hermetica, the Jews lived for many years in exile in Egypt, and their greatest prophet, Moses, was brought up as an Egyptian. Many years, Christians lived in Egypt, and the Greeks were in awe of the Egyptians, compared to whom they felt like children. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus. the Egyptians are religious to assess beyond any other nation of the world. They are meticulous in everything that, I mean, which concerns their religions, our religion. It was only if I may put it so, the day before yesterday, the Greeks came to know the origin and form of the vari- uh, various gods. The names of all the gods came to Greece from Egypt, for the names of all the gods have been known in Egypt from the beginning of time. Herodotus Casabon particularly claims that the Hermetica plagiarized the Timnius, a work written by Greek philosopher Plato in the fifth <laughs> century BCE. And uh, for those that don't know, BCE means before common era. Like the Hermetica includes the doctrines of astrology and reincarnation, yet these ideas play no part in early Greek religion. So where did all they come I mean where did they come from? The answer is ancient Egypt. Over a hundred years before Plato, the Greek sage Pythagoras had set out on a journey to acquire the knowledge of the world. This led him to Egypt where he spent 22 years in the temples being initiated into the religion of the Egypts, I mean Egyptians. According to the ancient Greek scholar Diogenes, uh, I'm sorry y'all, Latouris, Plato purchased three books of Pathagorean, uh, doctrines based on Egypt, which uh, I mean, Egyptian wisdom, and these had adapted into Timaeus. The similarities between the works of Plato and of America are not surprising. Therefore, since many of Plato's ideas were direct descendants of ancient Egypt, um, ancient Egyptian philosophy. Um. So there's that. And then I'm gonna read a second one, so stay tuned. So, this poem is entitled African Morning. It's by Langston Hughes. Here I go. Mariah took off his calico breeze cloth of faded blue flowers, he took two buckets of water and a big bar of soap into the backyard and threw water all over himself until he was clean. Then he wiped his small golden body on an English towel and went back into the house. His mother had told him always to wear English clothes whenever he went out with his father. or was sent on an errand into the offices of the export company or onto one of the big steamships that came up the niger to their little town so murai put on his best white shirt and a pair of little white sailor trousers that his mother had bought him before she died she hadn't been dead very long she was black pure african but murai was a half breed and his father was white his father worked in the bank in fact his father was the president of the bank the only bank for hundreds of miles on that part of the coast up the hot Niger Delta. Delta, I'm sorry, in a, in a town where there were few, I mean, there were very few white people and no other half breeds. That was what made it so hard for Marai. He was the only half native, half English child in the village. his his black mother's people didn't want him now that she was dead. And his father had no relatives in Africa, obviously. (laughs) I just added that last part. They were all, I mean, they were all in England far away and they were white. Sometimes when Mariah went outside of the stockade, the true African children pelted him with stones for being a half-breed and living inside the enclosure with the English. When his mother was alive, she would fight back for Mariah and protect him, but now he had to fight for himself. And a pale fresh morning, the child crossed the large square foreign enclosure of the English section toward the corner where the bank stood one entrance with uh within the stockade, and uh, another on the busy native street the boy ta- um the boy thought uh curiously how the whites had built a fence around themselves to keep the natives out as if black people were animals only servants and women could come in as a rule and already his father had bought another black I mean, another young black woman to live in their house. She was only a child, very young and very, I mean, and shy and not wise like his mother had been. There were already quite a few people in the bank this morning, transacting business. For today was steamer day and Mariah had come to take the letter to the captain for his father. In his father's office, there were three of four assistants surrounded the president's desk. And as Mariah opened the door, he heard the clink of gold. They were counting money there on the desk, a great pile of golden coins. And when they heard the door close, they turned quickly to see who had entered. Wait outside, Mariah, said his father sharply. His hands on the gold, I mean his hands on the gold, I'm sorry people. So the little boy went out into the (laughs) busy room, busy main room, I'm sorry, of the bank again. Evidently, they did not want him to see the gold. Mariah knew that in his village, the English did not allow Africans to possess gold, but to the whites, it was something very precious. They were always talking about it, always count, counting, it, and wrapping it, and sending it away by boat or receiving it from England. If a black boy stole a gold coin, I mean, stole a coin of gold. I'm sorry. They would give him a great many years in prison to think about it. This Mariah knew and suddenly he thought looking at his own small hands, maybe that's why the black people hate me because I am the color of gold. Just then his father came out of his office and handed him the letter. Here, Mariah, take this note to Captain Huggins or Higgins of the uh, Dourary and tell him I shall expect him for tea at four. Yes, sir, said Mariah as he went out into the native street down toward the river where the mass of the big boat towered. On the dock, everyone was busy. There were women selling, I mean, <laughs> there were women selling things to eat and boys waiting for sailors to come ashore. Winches rattled and the cranes lifted up their loads of palm oil and cocoa beans. Ebony black men, naked to the waist, the sweat pur- pouring off of them, loaded uh, loaded the rope hampers before they swung up and over down into the dark hole of the big ship. Their sweat fell from shining black bodies onto the bags of cocoa beans and went away to England and came back in gold. For the white man to count in banks as though it were the most precious thing in this world. Mariah went up to the steep, swinging stairways at the side of the ship, past the sailors leaning toward the, leaning toward over the deck rail, and on up the bridge and the captain's office. The captain took the letter from. A little golden boy without a word. As Mariah descended from the bridge, he could see directly down into the great dark holes where went the palm oil and the cocoa beans, and where more sweating ebony black men were stowing away the cargo for its trip to England. One of the white sailors grabbed Mariah on the wall deck and asked, You take me to see one fine girl? because he naturally thought Mariah was one of the many little boys who are regularly sent to the dock on steamer days by the prostitutes, knowing only one or two vile phrases in English. In the path to the prostitutes' door, the sailors flaying them a penny, perhaps if they happen to like the black girls to whom the child leads them. I am not a guide boy, a guide boy, I'm sorry, said Mariah. As he pulled away from the sailor and went on down the swinging uh, swinging stairs to the dock, Um, there were, I mean, there the sailor went down and went uh, on down, hold on, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Um, There the boys were, who were runners, for the girls and the palm hunts laughed and made fun of the little youngsters who was neither white nor black. They called him ugly, yellow name, and Mariah turned and stuck one of the boys in the face. But they did not fight fair. These dock boys, a dozen of them, began to strike and kick at Mariah, and even the black woman squatting on the a uh, wharf selling fruits and sweetmeats got up and joined the boys in their attack. While the sailors leaning on the rail of the English steamer had great fun watching the excitement, the little black boys ran mariah away from the wharf in a trail from his home. I mean, from his nose and looked down at his white shirt torn and grimy from the blows of the wharf rats. He thought how. Even in his English clothes, the sailor had taken him for a prostitute's boy and had asked him to find one fine girl for him. The little mulatto youngster went slowly up the main street, past the bank where his father worked, past the house of the man who, this is the last page, y'all, sells parrots and monkeys to the sailor's on past the big bayamo tree, <laughs> bayamo tree, there we go. Where the vendors of palm wine have their stands onto the very eight, I mean the very edge of town, which is the edge of the jungle to and down a narrow path through a sudden tangle of vines and flowers until he came to a place where. The still black waters of the lagoon formed a pool of, I mean on whose grassy banks, the feet of the uh, OB dancers danced in nights of moon. Here Mirai took off his clothes and went into the water cool to his bruised little body. He swarmed well, and he was not afraid of snakes or crocodiles. He was not afraid of anything but white people and black people and gold. Why he wandered into the water was his body the color of gold. Why wasn't he black or white like his mother or like his father, one of the one or the other, but not just like a bastard of gold filling his lungs with air, and holding his breath down, down, Mirai went, letting his naked body touch the, cool muddy bottom of the deep lagoon, suppose I were to stay here forever, he thought, in the dark, at the bottom of this pool, but against his will, his body stood, upward like a cork, and his skin caught, the sun in the middle, of the big pool, and he kept, on swimming around and around, loath to go back to the house and the enclosure where his father would soon be having the white captain to tea and I me mean, in the living room. But where he, Mariah and his, I mean, and the little dark girl with whom his father slept would of course eat in the kitchen. But since he had begun to be awfully, hung, I mean, But since he had begun to be awfully hungry and awfully tired, he came out of the water to lie down on the grassy bank and dry in the sun. And probably because he was the only 12 year old, Mariah began to cry. He thought about his mother who was dead and his father who would eventually retire and go back to England, leaving him in Africa where nobody wanted him out of of the jungle Two bright birds came flying and stopped to sing in a tree above his head. They did not know that a little boy was crying in the ground. I mean, on the ground below them. They paid no attention to the strange sounds that came from the small golden body, golden body up on the bank of the lagoon. They simply sang a moment, flashed their bright wings, and flew away the end so that's it for that one particularly uh so stay tuned for the next one oh what